This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. Fascism says you as an individual are easily broken. You are uh, replaceable, right? You and your private desires and dreams are really insignificant. You are only important when you are bundled tightly together. That's when you become powerful and unbreakable. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Libro.fm. My name is Nate, and I'm your host and American teacher abroad. Today's conversation is an interview with Dr. Beth Greek-Pileli. Uh, Beth is a professor of Holocaust studies, and she works with our friends at Pacific Lutheran University. And I reached out to her to have a conversation about the interwar period in Europe. This is a conversation born out of some of my reading as of late. Uh, I've talked on the show multiple times about the book, The Anatomy of Fascism by Robert O. Paxton, and it's going to come up in the conversation. Essentially, what I wanted to do was have Beth talk about what happened in Europe between World War I and World War II, and how did that set the stage for the rise of fascism in Europe, and then how can we apply those lessons and understandings to look at the current context in the United States and like what's happening with our politics. Uh, I think a lot of folks wishfully think that like the door to authoritarianism was closed with the election of Joe Biden, and I don't think that door is as closed as we'd like to think. And so she's going to talk through um, how the world in 1914 to 1939 was different. And one of the questions I'm excited to have her talk about is the difference between like the neoliberal Thatcher-Reagan consensus of like the modern world, where like essentially like we all kind of agree on neoliberal economics, even if we hate it, like that's the system, uh, and just how much more possibility there seemed to be back in the 1920s and 30s with different different ideologies. So if you're a history wonk, you're going to love this. Uh, if you are somebody who is uh, into politics, you're going to love this. Uh, frankly, I think everybody should listen to this interview, but like I'm biased, obviously. Um, this is a continuation of what I think is my favorite kind of interview, where basically it's like, hey, expert, make me smarter. And we have a bunch more of these coming up in the near future. Uh, before I go to Beth, just some quick admin. If you're listening to this show on a service that allows you to leave a rating, uh, like Apple Podcasts or, I don't know, Spotify have ratings? Anyway, it'd be great if you could leave a five-star rating for the show um, and a review. If you leave a review, I will read it, uh, especially if it's funny, honestly. Uh, and then also, if there's any guests or topics you would like to hear us discuss, shoot me an email, man. Uh, hit me up at nerdfarmpod at gmail.com. All right, let's get to Beth. Hey, Beth, thank you for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks. I'm super excited to have this conversation. Uh, one of the things that I try to do whenever I have a journalist or a professor on is, is I want them to tell, tell the audience, like, what's their beat? So what is your academic beat? Okay, my academic beat is, um, obviously, I'm a professor of history, and my title at Pacific Lutheran University is I'm the Kurt Mayer Chair of Holocaust Studies. 
And my area of expertise and the things that I write about and that I publish uh, are about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And specifically, most of my uh, uh, scholarly work deals with the role of Catholic church leaders, uh, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals uh, inside of Nazi Germany. And their either lack of action or, in some cases, minimal actions uh, with regards to the persecution of Jews. And so my, my area is mostly Nazi Germany, Holocaust studies. Uh, but of course, I also teach uh, over the years, I've taught many courses on uh, modern Europe and other you know, areas of European history. I feel like there's so much energy put by teachers into understanding and talking about World War II and like they fall in love with battles in World War II and like yeah. the Holocaust is a fascinating topic for obvious reasons yeah. and like talking about the rise of Hitler and Mussolini is interesting but like the scholarship around World War I is lacking in particular in the U.S. Yes. And so something that like I've always done in my classes – so in my practice, I have taught geography, I have taught history and I've taught political science – uh, in any course that I teach, I try at some point if possible to sneak in a map of Europe in 1914 and to show students what Europe looked like in 1914 and how the world was altered by what happened in World War One. Uh, exactly. Yeah. For, for, so I'm wondering, take me and the audience back to school for a moment. Okay. How did World War One redraw the map of Europe? OK, well, and, and I think you know, kudos to you for talking about World War One, because without World War One, you could really make a very strong argument that we would never have had a Hitler, a Mussolini, a Lenin, a Russian revolution, a communist, uh, the collapse of czarist Russia. Uh, World War One is a watershed event, right, where things are never going to go back to the way they used to be. And Winston Churchill, as a, a much younger person, we're used to seeing the images of Winston Churchill in World War II, but he played a pivotal role in World War I. Uh, and actually, after the terrible, disastrous battle of Gallipoli, which he had helped plan, uh, he then kind of decided, I'm, not, I'm leaving and I'm going to fight in the trenches on the Western Front. Right. And so he recognized in his writings that World War One had really altered Europe. And there's a beautiful quote uh, that I use that he, he said, the world at its sunset was never more beautiful to see. Hmm. And he's saying that in reference to World War One, right, that Europe as it was in 1914 is not going to look like Europe by 1918. And so when we talk about the, the impact of World War I and how critical it was, uh, leading us then into the stuff that most people want to focus on of World War II and Hitler and Mussolini, um, they kind of sometimes miss that there's a whole chunk of time between the end of the First World War and by the time we get to 1939, that's a 20-year time span that they've missed out on. And so when we talk about the end of the First World War, one of the big things to think about is, as you point out to your students, you look at that map in 1919, there are four major European empires that are gone, right? At the end of the war, no more Russian empire as, as Europe knew it. The czars are, the 
history of czars are gone, uh, and Russia has been plunged in the 1920s into a violent civil war. And again, I always tell students, watch the old movie, Dr. Zhivago, just to get a feel for the fighting, the chaos, right, of what is happening to Russia at this point. Uh, at the end of World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire has ceased to exist. It has been carved up into different components uh, based on uh, President of the United States Woodrow Wilson's idea of national self-determination. Right? So we get the creation of new states that, that people had never heard of before out of that Austro-Hungarian empire. You get a country called Czechoslovakia. You get a country called Yugoslavia. Hungary becomes an independent country. Poland is recreated, and Polish history is more complicated, but Poland is recreated, and their new Independence Day is November 11th, 1918, when the armistice was signed. Uh, we have the loss of the Ottoman Empire, which has perpetrated arguably one of the first modern genocides attacking the Armenian population. And then finally, the loss of the German Empire. And for the, for the Germans at the end of the First World War, when the guns fell silent on 11th, the 11th of November 1918 and the armistice had been signed, it's important for people to understand that at that exact moment in time when Germany signed the armistice that brought the war to an end, um, there were no foreign enemy combatants anywhere on German soil. Mm -hmm. And so particularly for German people, when they, of course, received the news that the war had ended, the immediate reaction is relief. Right. Finally, all, the war is over. All of the suffering is done. Right. But then comes the shock. What do you mean that we've been defeated? Because when I walk out my front door, I don't see British troops or French troops or American troops. So how can you say that my country has lost and been defeated when we see no enemy occupying forces anywhere on German soil. And so this is, I think, critical for people to begin to understand that for many German people, they absolutely refuse to accept that Germany had been militarily defeated. And then in 1919, when that final post-war treaty is signed, the Treaty of Versailles, that destroys the German Empire. All of the territory that Germany had conquered and occupied during the First World War is stripped away from them. Germany loses all of their overseas colonial possessions and the victorious allied powers put a, a kind of double punch into that clause when the colonies are taken from Germany, they say it's because Germans are unfit to rule colonies. And we're talking about the age of social Darwinism, when people, intellectuals in particular, believed in this ideology that white Christian European men are superior to everyone else. And mm -hmm. so that, that line in that Treaty of Versailles says, you white German Christians 
are not fit to rule over people of color, right? And particularly in Africa. And so there are so many parts and moments in that Treaty of Versailles where the German people have this visceral reaction, uh, say, what do you mean, you know, we're not fit to rule over colonies? What do you mean we've actually been responsible for the, the, the war itself? All of this is going to be kind of tinder uh, to fuel to a fire in the 1920s. And so if you look, as you, as you have your students do, if you look at a map of what Europe's boundaries looked like in 1914, and then you went back and looked by 1919 when all of these peace treaties are being signed, the, the loss of empires, the creation of entirely new entities, new nation states have been formed. Uh, the, the issue of what to do with the, the losing uh, powers colonies, right? Who, and again, in most cases, because of social Darwinism, colonies that were taken from Germany don't receive their independence, right? Instead, they're transferred over into a kind of international mandate control by the British and the French. Um, and so everything looks different. And when everything looks different, people tend to be nervous about the future, right? If you, if you don't know, you know, where the future is going, there's a, a tendency among many people to be very, very nervous. And so beginning in 1919 and throughout the 1920s, I tend to think of it in the sense of an age of extremes, Right. And so what you end up with are for many, many people, the uncertainty of the future, Russia fighting a bloody, violent civil war. People's attention is riveted on that. New countries that are trying to define their identity. Who are we? What does it mean to say we're Czechoslovakian? Right. Who gets to be a Czechoslovakian? Um, and every country that's been created is is struggling with that identity question. The Austro-Hungarian Empire now is no longer. So you have this what's called the rump state of Austria. And Austria has to have its own identity crisis then. What are we? Right? We used to be this the seat of power of a massive cosmopolitan empire. And now we're whittled down to next to nothing. And technically, Austrians are ethnic Germans. Should we unify with Germany? Well, the Treaty of Versailles says explicitly that Germany and Austria can never be united. Hmm. So they're left kind of grappling. For most average people, that means, and in this chaos of, of the, the aftermath of war, they gravitate towards extreme solutions. And so there's a, a rise of uh, political extremism on both the left and the right. And in many cases, people are so drawn to those extreme radical solutions to this restructuring of their world uh, that the, the moderate center, the need for compromise has been lost. And, and so I think that, you know, this is a, a it's a fascinating time period. If we, if we can get more people to, to from listening to this podcast to say, boy, I want to go back and look and find out about what was going on when these empires were being just 
carved up and, and chopped into pieces. Um, and it's really kind of setting the table for these extremist movements on both sides of, of the political spectrum. And I'm yeah, sorry if I'm talking too much because I'm a no. professor and, you know, <laughs> you unleash me and I will go. So you feel free no, to totally interrupt fine. me whenever you need to, because, again, once I get going, I love this topic. So it's hard for me to stop talking. OK, no, you're totally fine. And I love it. I love it. So a couple of things you said really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like when most folks think about the modern world, they define the modern world as the post-World War II era, the era of like the Bretton Woods Accords and all that stuff. Right. But like I'm going to argue that World War I is actually the, the introduction of the modern world. Like airplanes show up for the first time. Submarines show up for the first time. Uh, I know that people who work in academia have a love-hate relationship with Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. Right. But he talks about how – when the French army showed up at the beginning of World War One, they were basically wearing the uniforms of like the Napoleonic army, yes, right? Yes. And then by the end of it, they experienced trench warfare. And mm -hmm. so, so many things you were saying about that really resonate with me. You, you've mentioned this era and this period of extremes, and that's kind of where I want to take the conversation now. So we live – so I'm 41 years old. I was born in 1979. I've lived my life basically under the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal consensus, and most of the Western world and modernized world basically exists under this same Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal consensus. And even in places like Mexico, where you have like a populist leader like Andres Manuel López Obrador, like it's, right. it's still playing on the edges of neoliberalism. Right. This time period in Europe is not that. No. <laughs> Walk me through the ideologies that were at play and competing mm -hmm. for control of European states in this interwar period. Okay, that's a, and that's a, a, an excellent question. And again, essentially, back to this age of extremes idea, right? Um, what we're going to find is, yes, there are still the traditional uh, political parties, right? And so, and, and I'll speak specifically to Germany, since I, that's my area of expertise. And that's what I really know in depth kind of the, the most about. What you're going to find, just like you use your example of the French military, right? It goes off to battle in 19... 14 kind of in their fancy red jackets mm -hmm. and you know all the fancy uniforms and by the end it looks much much different well political parties coming out of uh the first world war in it, particularly in germany but you could also apply this to italy and to other uh, other nations right and particularly russia as well um, what we're going to find is that you're going to have some political parties that kind of decide well, we're still the political party that we were during the war, but we need a new image. And so we might change our name. So in the case of many German political parties, they begin to change their name by inserting the word usually people, right? Because mm -hmm. at the in 1919, Germany becomes, for the first time in its history, a democratic republic. And since its constitution was written in the town of Weimar, Germany, near Dachau, um, the, it comes to be called the Weimar Republic. Okay, so now what do we find? So if we're now this egalitarian dem democratic republic, all of these older political parties say, well, we know what to do. We'll insert the word people into our party because that sounds like it's democracy, right? So still vote for us. We're still the same party. 
But of course, for most people, after living through this massive bloodletting event of the First World War, and again, people, because of the numbers of casualties in World War II, they forget that for people who lived through the First World War, no one in human history had experienced killing on such a massive scale, right? Battle of the Somme over 60,000 casualties on the first day of the attack. So for people living through that shattering experience, they think this is a a tragedy of untold proportions. And again, we forget that because of World War II, but World War I shapes people's mentalities. And so we get this feeling that for many individuals coming out of that experience, They begin to say, are those old political parties part of the reason that we live through this terrible bloodletting? And maybe they are not the ones to entrust with our future, right? There might not be the right people to guide us into this new world. And so we find people beginning to open up their horizons and say that those political parties that existed before 1914 and exist after 1918, they might be partially responsible for the loss of my son or my husband or all of my brothers in trench warfare and on the other fronts of battle. So let's find other solutions, right? And we get the rise of a deep attraction of the extremes. Let's go the way of Russia, right? Let's go the way of Russia. Let's go with the Bolsheviks led by Lenin, uh, also called the Communist Party. Let's go with them. Um, Or let's do maybe a slightly more moderated version of communism. Let's go with the socialists. And so in Germany, it's the the social, uh, social democratic party that people are drawn to. Now, that's going to appeal particularly to working class people uh, and and to many intellectuals. The idea of radically restructuring society, uh, taking on all of society's institutions and demolishing them and creating this new man, right? The, The communist man, the socialist man. Of course, for many other segments of society, particularly middle class And upper class people, people who own property, who say, I don't like communist ideology because that says they're going to take my property away, right? And I'm not going to be able to control it. Many of them abandon the traditional moderate parties that they had belonged to and begin to say, there's an alternative out there. And that alternative is something called fascism. And, And this is the extreme right on the political spectrum. And so for many people, we get this this real division of we're either radically restructuring our society along communist lines or maybe socialist lines a little less extreme, or we're going to the extreme right and we're counter-revolutionary. We wanna turn the clock back to a time when we put money in the bank and we knew it was going to be worth the same thing that it was years later, right? It's going to it's going to still have the same value. Uh, we want to turn the clock back. Uh, for in the case of Germany, 
you have people saying, we know we, we've lost the Kaiser, the emperor, right? He's, he's abdicated at the end of the First World War. He's now living in Holland. We've got this crazy thing called the Weimar Republic. That's a de- democratic form of government. But the extreme right argues, historically, Germans have never had a democratic form of government. It's always been an authoritarian or militaristic style regime. And so they would argue it is foreign to the German national character to to accept the idea of a democracy, right? And and this is hard, especially for American students to wrap their head around who doesn't want democracy, right? Who wouldn't want that? Um, And most of them don't understand that there were entire segments of the German population who would have said, we don't want democracy because We've never had it before, and that shows that it's not natural, it's not organic to our nature. And the growing uh, movement of fascism, and fascist movements are all over, not only Europe, but all over the world in this interwar time period, fascist movements say it's organic, it's what's natural to to your national character. That's the kind of government they're promising. And that is very appealing to particularly German people and ultimately to many Italian people, right? That these are kind of the examples of uh, the success stories, if you will, of fascist ideology. Uh, To a lesser extent, you could look at Spain uh, as another example of fascism triumphing uh, under uh, Francisco Franco. Um, but it's definitely what's pulling people in these directions are these extremes. And for historians looking at this Weimar Republic, which really lasts from 1919 until Hitler becomes the chancellor of Germany in 1933, um, they, they sometimes use the image of the Weimar regime is like a candle burning from both ends. You have the extreme left, the extreme right. And they're just, it's, it's on fire, right? And they're fighting constantly. And so I, I would characterize this time period, this interwar time period as this pivotal moment when people are being forced to decide what type of government do you want? And the, the kind of top choices are the extremes of both ends of the political spectrum. So I'll let you get another question in here otherwise, because I know otherwise no, no, I'm just no, going to no. keep going and you know, <laughs> I don't want anybody no, to fall me. asleep on me. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. You actually took me exactly where I wanted to go talking about the extremes. We'll take a break here and we okay. come back. I want to take this conversation about the extremes and I want to apply it to contemporary American politics and think about some lessons or, warning, or warnings or some like indicators we could be looking at. So we will be back. Hello friends, this is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. 
Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're gonna get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you wanna learn more, visit movetacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. And we are back. Listen, you have a choice every Monday about what you're going to listen to. I looked at my phone this week and I realized that all my favorite podcasts come out on Monday. Like Stadio comes out, you get your soccer takes, Open Source comes out, uh, my own show comes out. If you enjoy listening to the show and want to support Channel 253 and the Nerd Farmer podcast, I'm going to ask you to think about, no, don't think about, just do, join Channel 253. Memberships to Channel 253 are $4 a month or $40 a year, and your support for this network and the show gives you access to a bunch of things, a bunch of goodies, including our member-only Slack. Uh, right now on the member-only Slack, there's a conversation about how to get vaccinated uh, and where people can go to get vaccinated. Some folks uh, today actually did the standby line at the Tacoma Dome and were able to get a dose. Uh, also, if you listen to the network and are a member, you get access to Doug's podcast, uh, Off the Record, where we have kind of the outtakes and the extra conversations uh, that don't fit on the show necessarily. And Off the Record is a place where hosts get frank and duck at, Doug asks great question. Uh, my favorite question that Doug always asks at the end of every episode is like the question like that's out of left field off the wall. Uh, He's stumped me a couple of times, but like it, it's, it's always a fun conversation. Uh, the Channel 253 Network is an effort of local love and local storytelling, and it's worth your support. And so please go to channel243.com slash membership, $4 a month or $40 a year. All right. Uh, Beth, back to you. You touched on a whole bunch of things uh, at the very end of the last segment that I wanted to get to. Uh, something that I think about is the idea that... So Yale professor Timothy Snyder has two books that I adore. One is called Black Earth, which is like the, for me, is, is one of the best histories of the Holocaust. And then the other one's called Bloodlands, which mm -hmm. is the definitive story of World War II and the Eastern Front. Right. And you talked about how during World War I, the majority of the death and chaos and violence and loss was on the Western Front. And I think that during World War II, the majority of the death, violence, and chaos is on the Eastern Front, not discounting the Pacific, not, not discounting Japan, right. not discounting anything else, right? So right. Just, just that being said, that being said. Uh, when you were laying out ideologies, essentially you laid out that there is a fascist ideology rising on the political right, mm -hmm. my right hand. Mm -hmm. There's a communist ideology on the political left. And there's also a democratic socialist ideology on the left that is socialist. So it's it's Marxist, but not communist. Right. I, I'm curious, what's happening in the political center in European states at the time period? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, for for many of the the, the political center, uh, it's a time where they're kind of I almost get the feeling that they're scrambling. 
right? That mm-hmm. they're they're trying. And again, I, I'm speaking, thinking specifically of Germany because that's the country where my area of expertise is. Um, for for many of these middle kind of moderate uh, political parties, they are kind of feeling that they have to get those votes, right? Because Germany's now this democracy and Germany's one of the first countries to grant women the right to vote. So beginning in 1919, women as well as men in Germany have the legal right to vote. If you're over the age of 20, you can vote for the National Assembly, for delegates and so on and so forth. And so political parties, all of them have to rethink now we're not only appealing to men for their vote, we also have to reach women, right? We have to convince women to vote for us as well. And so for some of the more traditional conservative parties, this is this is a difficult task, right? Because the idea is that, well, you know, women are supposed to not be political. They're supposed to not have a, the head for it, you know, th- those kinds of things. And everything that we would see as being kind of sexist and gender biased, um, you know, it's it's kind of there in the forefront, whereas particularly communism and socialism have embraced the role of women and have kind of promoted that women's equality issues for those moderate parties. They have to try to do many things that they've never had to do before. Right. They've got to reach into the, the, the female audience. They've got to try to convince working class people to not go communist, right, to, to stick with them, uh, that they have their best interests at heart. And then they also have to appeal to upper and, and middle class people to not abandon them uh, in the name of this, this kind of shiny new object called fascism out there. And so you're going to find that besides them changing their names and inserting the word people, uh, in some cases they put the word national, right? To say, oh, here we're a nation and, and we're all people together. Uh, they really have to rethink kind of how are we going to approach campaigning? How are we going to woo voters and get them to still stay with us? They're largely unsuccessful in Germany. Right. In the sense that over the course of the 1920s, for a variety of reasons, right, Germany is refusing to admit military defeat. Uh, You've got the Treaty of Versailles and then the kind of offshoot that grows out of it is the idea that Germany has to make these massive reparation payments Mm -hmm. uh, for the, the damages of the First World War. That is an extremely controversial part that almost every uh, politician in Germany refuses to say, and I'm going to raise your taxes, German people, so that we can make good on these reparations payment. Because that implies that you accept that Germany was responsible, along with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for the war and all of the damages that followed from the war. And so you you have uh, in the 1920s, you've got skyrocketing inflation. Uh, You have this Weimar government that really they've never had a democratic form of government. And so most of these uh, politicians don't really know how does democracy work. Right. And we're not used to the system. And the government says we also have demobilizing millions of soldiers. We don't know what to do with them. Now we've got over 2 million dead soldiers, which means that now there are potentially 2 million German women of marriageable age who are not going to find a husband. 
And the politicians uncharitably call those women surplus women, right? They're, they don't know what to do with them. Yeah, that's awkward and terrible, right? Um, and the, the government says in this crisis, we have growing unemployment. The effects of World War I's British naval blockade of German ports have resulted in the death of close to 800,000 German civilians dying from starvation and hypothermia. And at the end of the war, the British don't take away that blockade. So the long lasting impact of starvation, uh, homelessness, people who can't pay their rent any longer, there are homeless encampments all over. And just to give your, your listeners a real sense of the hyperinflation, by November of 1923, and this is when the hyperinflation was absolutely at its highest point, if you traveled from America to Germany and you brought one American dollar with you, it was the equivalent of 4.2 trillion German marks which again means that that paper money is absolutely valueless. And in Germany, some people say, I use that money for toilet paper because at least it performs a useful function, right? It is, and, and this is where we get those images of a wheelbarrow filled with paper money to buy one loaf of bread. That's the reality. And, and in that reality, where you have the French occupying parts of Germany to enforce the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. You've got hyperinflation, the likes of which I don't think we can even really wrap our minds around. It's the kind of inflation where literally the prices of products change by the hour and they never go down in price, they always go up. Um, so that clerks and stores are constantly going back out and changing the price. It's the kind of environment where if you had money to go out to eat and there were people who went to restaurants, right? As soon as you placed your order, you paid because in the time span of you placing the order and the chef preparing your meal and the waiter or waitress bringing the meal to the table, the price of the meal would have gone up. And so it's really, I think, unimaginable for us to, to think about that. But those moderate parties are trying to put forward solutions, but they're highly ineffective. And so you end up with, again, for most people, the fear and uncertainty coupled with the exhaustion of coming out of the First World War experience leads many people to say something radical has to change in order to fix this multitude of problems that we're grappling with. And so for most people, the, those extremes are, are resonating with them more deeply than the, the same old, same old stuff of those moderate parties. Uh, and so again, for many people, they're opened up to this idea that we need radical change in order to avert this multitude of crises that we're dealing with. This is starting to sound familiar and I almost <laughs> don't want to go there yet. <laughs> um, we're going to talk a bit about fascism and fascism is a word that gets thrown around a lot. I'd argue it gets overused sometimes. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I had an experience reading the Robert O. Paxton book, The Anatomy of Fascism, this year, uh, which which in concert with Stanley Payne's uh, History of Fascism, I, I think paints a very vivid picture of like what a fascist state is right. and like how they come to power. But like we're not going to recapitulate two books right now. Right. <laughs> uh, briefly, could you explain to a layman what is a fascist state and what are the signs of a fascist state? And then also what are fascist movements and what are the signs of fascist movements? Okay, so um, I, again, as a historian, I have to, you know, do just a little fascism as a word, right, is rooted in Latin uh, mm-hmm. and the Latin root uh, word fascist. Uh, and this had to do with the phenomenon in post, it really has origins in the First World War and even a little bit before the First World War in Italy. Uh, but this growth of this movement uh, that takes as its symbol uh, what in, in Italian would be fascio, which is this bundle of, of rods. And they are taking this from ancient Roman history that there was uh, the civic magistrate would carry this bundle of rods that were wrapped around an axe. And it was the symbol of authority that you are the civic magistrate. And of course, the, the fascist movement says, you know, if you look at all of these individual uh, bundles of sticks, right, if you took one stick out, you can break it, you can snap it easily, right? It's weak. But if you bundle sticks tightly together, that's when they become powerful. And that image, I think, is a very useful way for lay people to have an, an, an entree into understanding fascism. Fascism says you as an individual are easily broken. You are uh, replaceable, right? You and your private desires and dreams are really insignificant. You are only important when you are bundled tightly together. That's when you become powerful and unbreakable. And so that's, I think, an easy kind of handy image for people to kind of understand fascism, that as a group, as a a unified group, uh, in the case of Germany, the word that that they tend to use um, is Volksgemeinschaft, which is the typical German super duper long word. But it just means, usually translates people's community, right, or national community. And that, again, implies that you as an individual are going to be asked by the state to sublimate, to to reject your own desires, your own goals for the greater good of the community. Right. And so in both in in the cases of both the extreme left and right, they're both holding out the, the hope that they can restructure society and create the new man. Right. The new man. And it's either the communist man or it's going to be the fascist or the Nazi man. And in both cases, they're asking in the, for the good of the state, for the good of the community that you belong to, you have to set aside your personal aspirations and become what the state needs you to become. Um, so that's maybe a beginning way of thinking about fascism and, and kind of an easy way using that image of a bundle of sticks tied together. Um, of course, Stanley Payne, Roger Griffin, you know, all, all of these are, are big names in defining fascism. 
Um, I try to stay away from a lot of the 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 super kind of jargon words that that are used just because I think in the end only maybe scholars would be like, oh yes, I you know I know that. But for average for students when I walk into the class and I have to talk about the rise of, of fascism, um, we tend to I, I tend to talk about kind of the principles that particularly Stanley Payne uh, uses, right? That fascism is really good at describing itself by what it is not, right? What we might call mm. a negative definition. And so fascism says, we can't tell you exactly what we are, but here's what we're definitely not. We are not liberal. We're not communist. We're not uh, capitalist, right? We're, we're none of these things. Um, and so in a way, this, this works for uh, particularly the Nazi party, right? That they are the party of these kind of negative definitions. Hitler says in February of 1920, uh, when he's basically taking over the German Workers' Party and renaming it the National Socialist German Workers' Party, what we just shortened to the Nazi party, he says, I'm against communism. Why? Well, because communism threatens to divide that bundle of sticks right? The German Aryan community, communism says there are rich people and there are poor people and poor people have to restructure society and take that property away. And so Hitler says that divides the German people. I'm here to unify the German people. Now, again, there's an asterisk there, right? Just like in the sports books, right? That Oh, he was possibly on steroids and made all those scores, right? When Hitler says, I'm here to unify all German people, we all know that he means only a certain group of German people. And there's a long list of people who will be excluded from the Volksgemeinschaft, from the people's community. But in, in his definition, it's negative, right? I'm against communism. I'm also, he says, against capitalism and democracy, Right now, he's saying that in a democratic republic that gives him freedom of speech. And he says, I'm against democracy because democracy is weak. He says, if you are a politician, if you're a leader and you say, this is what I believe, then the public doesn't understand when you compromise with your political opponents. Right. That's weakness. And so he's, he says, you know, democracy breeds weak liberal ideology. And so he rejects both, you know, the alternatives that are floating out there. You can be a democracy or you could go communist. He said, nope, that is not what we're about. So I think part of understanding fascism is understanding this kind of negativity that it's easier for them to put their finger on what they're not than what they actually are. And then I think, again, kind of paying homage to Stanley Payne, he talks about the goals of fascism. And in particular, uh, one of the goals is to have a dictatorship uh, that, that you're going to do away with uh, all of these wranglings and, and compromises of political parties. Um, we can see that with Mussolini in Italy, uh, that he wants to be El Duce, right, the, the leader and then Hitler takes a page out of Mussolini's book and says, well, I want to be der Führer, the leader. It's the same exact kind of language. Um, and what did Hitler 
Outray tells people in the 1920s that he is using the machinery of democracy. He's campaigning. He's flying all over Germany, letting them hear Nazi ideology, right? Bringing this to the people. He's using the machinery of democracy, campaigning, getting votes, building up a political party to gain power so that he can then destroy democracy. And that is exactly what he does. Hitler is one of those rare politicians who says, here's what I'm going to do. And he does it. Um, and so, and people, you know, we're, we're cynical about politics today, but people were cynical back then, right? Oh, politicians promise you the world and they don't give you half of what they're going to, they don't deliver on what they've said. Um, but Hitler says, I'm going to give you a country that is unified where there are no voices of dissent. And he means it. And that is going to be his goal. Um, and so in, in general, when we look at fascist movements, that is one of their shared kind of commonalities to have a dictatorship that closes off uh, other political parties. You get the development of the one party state, right? So the Italian fascist party, is, is that's it in Italy. Uh, the Nazi party by July of 1933 is the only political party allowed to legally exist. So we can look at goals, right, as kind of what fascist movements show. Um, and it, usually along with national dictatorship, we also get the notion of expansion, right, that you can't be content with the borders that you have as your country. So in the case of Germany, the concept that Hitler adopts, he doesn't in invent it, but he adopts a pre-existing concept called Lebensraum, right, living space. In order for the Aryan Germanic people to survive and thrive as that bundle of sticks, as that community, they have to constantly expand. They've got to have more territory. And in particular, Hitler looks to Germany's eastern boundaries into the vast expanses of what by that point is under Lenin and then Stalin and says, that's going to be the Aryan Garden of Eden. Right. That's where we can really create the new man. And this leads into kind of the next part of the fascist definition, fascist style. Right. They want the new man. And in Nazi Germany, particularly the SS, these are the black uniformed uh, members that originally started as Hitler's personal bodyguard in the 1920s. Uh, they're taken. They're created by Heinrich Himmler. Himmler wants them to be this elite organization. So he is out there recruiting the sons of former aristocrats uh, to wear that all black uniform. And it's ultimately the SS that represents the ideal of the Nazi ideology. They are the new Aryan men of this fascist state. And they ultimately are the ones who are in those mobile killing squads on the Eastern Front, killing civilians, uh, annihilating Jews everywhere they find them. And it's the SS that runs the, the concentration camp system and most of the work camp system as well. And so they're supposed to be a certain way. And so masculinity, hyper-masculinity is part of fascist style, right? Um, and if you think about kind of fascist art, um, 
there's a a place in Italy to this day that has uh, left all the examples of uh, Mussolini's fascist art. It's, it's, I don't know how to pronounce it properly because I don't speak Italian, but it's uh, spelled uh, E-U-R. And it's outside of Rome. It's an easy train ride. There are these large, gigantic statues. And of course, they're they're kind of modeled on ant, uh, statues from antiquity. And it's the, the ideal perfect male body, the ideal perfect female body. Uh, there are these, you know, the men are broad shouldered and slim hipped and they've got the six pack abs, right? And there, this is part of fascist kind of hyper masculinity. You have to be healthy. You have to be physically fit because you have to be ready to fight. And part of fascist ideology is about really borrowing from social Darwinism, survival of the fittest. If you, you have to be healthy and competitive and aggressive if you're a male, and that means you are always ready to fight. If you really believe in your ideology, you have to prove that by violent behavior. And so this is something that Hitler uh, vehemently, passionately believed in, that in order for uh, to prove that a person really was dedicated to Nazism, you had to be willing to lay down your life for that ideology. And so this is all part of kind of fascist style, right? And so it's uh, this kind of hyper-masculinity. It's the mass crowds. Uh, it's you're, you, you want as many angry people as you can possibly get uh, in, in this, this crowd. Uh, and you extol violence. This is different. When you, when you think about the 1920s, and the rise of these fascist movements that are talking about aggressive masculinity and extolling violence, this stands in stark contradiction to the very large pacifist movement that came out of the First World War, right? Out of the First World War, we get these these very strong international pacifist organizations that say, let's do anything and everything we possibly can to avoid another bloodletting that we just lived through from 1914 to 1918. And yet you've got these pacifist movements that are saying, oh no, we are not afraid of violence. And in fact, we glory in violence because it shows decisiveness. It's none of this wishy-washy liberal weakness that talks about compromise. You are willing to fight in the streets and literally kill people for your ideology. And that is extolled as a virtue. Um, and, and so all there's so many different fascinating components of fascism, but I think that's kind of my highlight reel that I would bring out, right? That you, you have, you have the, the kind of negative definitions, you've got the goal of having a dictatorship where then there's freedom to uh, enforce this restructuring of society, and then you've got this kind of style that goes along with it that promotes violence, that promotes this kind of, you, if you're a man, there's that leadership principle. For women, it's slightly different, right? For women, it tends to go back almost to Victorian ideology, that proper fascist women are wives and mothers. They don't really have an interest in the public sphere. 
and that they are content to make the home a sanctuary. So when their manly man comes home from fighting in the streets, they bind his wounds and they make the home this kind of sanctuary place. Um, and so that that would be kind of how I would explain fascism uh, to a, a lay person, to students in my classes. And, and then, of course, you could dig into uh, these, these uh, more sophisticated uh, kind of explanations of, of fascism. But that, that would at least be uh, a starting point for me. So it's funny because the last thing I was going to ask you is what about the current political moment in the United States? Could you pause? But I also feel like you, if you can't connect the dots from what you just laid out, then like you aren't <laughs> listening to the conversation. <laughs> and so I almost want to forego that question, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you briefly, briefly, right. uh, as somebody who is an expert in this time period, mm -hmm. who studies the Holocaust, who uh, understands the rise of fascism and fascist movements, just really briefly, what are some things about the current political moment that give you pause? Yeah, that, that's that's a hard question. As a historian, right, I, I want to look at the past and not at, at the current events, but it's impossible to ignore. And, and history is supposed to inform the present. Um, there are many analogies, many similarities that we can draw between that interwar period when people were being drawn into the extremes. Um, my fear is that people tend to overuse uh Nazism and fascism in our current political scene. And that that really doesn't move a conversation forward, right? The minute you demonize your enemy by saying you're a Nazi, you're a fascist, in a way it shuts down the opportunity for conversation. And what I encourage people to do is to say, yes, there was this historical phenomenon. There are many parallels and analogies that we can learn from but to at least avoid the, the, the use of this terminology in the sense that if you want to move people forward, and one of the greatest failings of the Weimar Republic was the inability to bring the extremes into a conversation and to have a real conversation, not name calling and not finger pointing, but, but to have a real conversation about are there elements that we could in fact agree upon. And so my encouragement for students, and again, we, we, we reach out to so many different types of students um, from all different political viewpoints. I don't wanna alienate any of them, but I want them to, to say, we have to have a discussion and by call, yelling out and saying, that's a, fasc that's a fascist person, you're just like Hitler. In the end, that's unproductive because the person who got called that name immediately gets their hackles raised. They're not gonna engage in a real discussion. They've shut down. Um, and the person doing the name calling ha has not helped the matter, right? And so it's, it's much more productive for people to avoid falling into that easy trap of saying, oh, that's just like Hitler. Uh, that's just like you know the, a fascist movement. In some cases it is. But it's more productive to avoid the name calling and just say, we have to have some kind of points of agreement. And if we're ever going to reunite as a nation, particularly America's political scene being so divided right now, my plea would be for people 
to sit down and have real conversations about what are some of the, the issues that we could actually agree upon and work forward from and to try to avoid you know, shutting that conversation down before it even gets an opportunity to begin. So I don't know if that's exactly you know what you're, you're you're hoping for, but like you said, I think people can draw their own conclusions from what I have said earlier uh, in 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 our conversation um, about you know where we can see elements. Uh, but calling and labeling people names from the past in in the long run are unproductive because in the end it shuts down a conversation uh, that needs to happen. And, and that's just my, you know, personal opinion and, and kind of what I think. Uh, but I, I, again, we have to learn from history. We have to be able to point our finger and say, this reminds us of these events. Uh, but then we also can't name call people uh, in order to get a conversation going. Um, Beth, if people want to find your work online and follow your work online, where should they look? Okay, so um, uh, the most most recent book is uh, about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, and uh, it's actually coming. Uh, it's coming out this year in a second revised and extended edition. Uh, but it's just called Anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, and it's taken us back from ancient uh, rise of Christianity, Jesus of Nazareth and the development of legends, myths, and stereotypes about Jews that are then employed by the Nazis uh, to convince German people that Jews really are a threat uh, to that bundle of sticks, right? That they're a threat to the people's community. Uh, and it takes you through the Holocaust. So that's my most recent work. And that's available over you know, any website that sells books. Uh, they should be able to find that. Um, I have plenty of articles. Another book that I've written uh, was about a Roman Catholic bishop who uh, spoke out against the Nazi euthanasia project. That was the attempt to kill the mentally ill and physically handicapped in Germany. And uh, his name was Bishop von Gallen. And so that was my dissertation research and that became my first book. So that's out there as well. And then I have other books that I've edited about the uh, impact of the Nuremberg war crimes trials and uh, a, a book that I co-edited about uh, history, art, uh, and uh, the uh, relationship to the Holocaust. So there's lots of good stuff out there, um, it, but uh, hopefully people will be interested enough. <laughs> I, I always think back to when I wrote my dissertation and my mother read it and my, my dad was <laughs> kind of struck. My dad was struggling to make, make it through it. Um, I don't know that he ever really completed it. So I always feel hesitant to tell people to read my books. <laughs> so, but I hope they do. I hope they do. Uh, there's, there's lots of good stuff out there. Um, and for books about the interwar period, I would really recommend a fascinating book called The Vanquished. And it's by uh, Robert Gerrard. And it is a fantastic look at this interwar time period. And his argument is in some places, particularly in Eastern Europe, World War I never really ended. And mm -hmm. it, it touches on many of the topics that I think you, you are really very interested in, Nate. 
Beth, thank you so much for making time this morning for this conversation. Uh, I think it's really important that we have these kind of dialogues about both history and also the present reality of the United States. Like it's cliche to say that those that don't history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, it's more specific to say like the same nonsense that happened is coming around again, y'all. So like get ready. And so <laughs> exactly. thank you so much. Thank, thank you. So you. Much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, wear a mask, and hold the police officers that killed Manny Ellis accountable. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. People love that episode. Like, I got such good feedback. <laughs> I and I'm bet, like, I, I was sitting there like, get me out of here. What is <laughs> happening? So, you know, it's totally well, fine. I'm not, I'm not high. I promise. <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.